Welcome back, dear listeners, to the Dish with Dina podcast. I'm so happy to have you join us again. My guest today is Greg Zacharis. Greg and I dish about overcoming childhood trauma, thinking outside the box, and how there's more to food than just nutrients. Greg is a registered dietitian who is passionate about setting lifestyle management goals and achieving them. He is particularly knowledgeable in diabetes education and management, but currently works in a psychiatric hospital where he uses nutritional interventions to help patients manage symptoms of anxiety, neurodevelopmental, and substance use disorders. He is adept at working with ethnically diverse populations and helps limit any cultural barriers his patients may feel. So sit back, enjoy the conversation, and let's dish. Welcome, Greg Zacharis, to the Dish with Dina podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I I know you and I were just talking about kind of like where we first met and crossed paths and you have been in my life for almost seven years now, if I've if I've counted correctly. Do you remember the first time that we met? I met- think it was. I I do think it was through uh, Lehman College, because I think we were both applying for internships at the same time. I think you may have done your internship like a year before me, but we were both going to. I I think it was like a, the Lehman Open House internship. Oh my gosh, that is I crazy. Think so. I'm I'm pretty sure that was the first, and then. Um, and then we added each other like on all social medias and stuff. And then we saw each other a few times since then. But I think I want to say that was the first time. Yeah, that makes sense to me, too, because there were so many things going on at that time and a lot of decisions to be made. And then it was almost like we were kind of following similar paths as we propelled through that experience. And for a lot of the people who listen to this podcast, you all know, a lot of you know, we've talked about this before with the dietetic internship and what a long procedure that can be. It's quite challenging, quite complex, very, could be quite overwhelming. We'll talk a little bit about that too, Greg, but I was just sharing with you that I feel like here it is seven years later and I'm still recovering from some of the things that I had to go through, just, you know, juggling time and responsibilities. And also we had a combined program. So I also had to go to class at night as well. So I'm not sure how um, your internship ended up being scheduled or, or structured, I should say, but we'll talk about that shortly before we do, before we launch into that though, let's go back even further. Will you share with us some of your earliest food memories, where did you grow up? What kind of culture were you around? What maybe holiday or special meals do you remember when the word food comes to mind? I live in Long Island. Um, right now I'm living in Ro- Roslyn, but I was uh, born and raised in um, New Hyde Park, which is, which is very close to Roslyn. So I've lived in like the Nassau County area my whole life. I was uh, actually diagnosed with uh, type one diabetes at the age of six, I was very young. And ever since then, obvious, for obvious reasons, my relationship with food changed dramatically because it's like every meal is a science project. It's never like I can just eat something without thinking about it. And, and that's why it's like the whole in thing nowadays is um, intuitive eating and to just like, oh, listen to your body. Like, don't listen, don't pay attention to numbers. Don't, but like for me in my illness, I never really had that luxury to, to practice that to, to its full extent, at least. 
So I always had to pay attention to numbers and how much I'm eating and like how much medication I have to give myself for this meal, how much insulin. So uh, that started at six years old. Before that, um, I, I feel like I didn't have m many memories of food. I kind of just ate because I knew I had to, you know, when you're a young child. I, I come from a, a interfaith background. My dad is um, Italian, Christian, and my mom is uh, Jewish. So yeah, my dad is very, you know, big on his Italian food, loves his pasta, loves his bread and uh, the wine and stuff. And, um, you know, my mom makes her Jewish food and, you know, so, and, and I love both of those cuisines. I have to say, I definitely got a perfect 50-50 mix of both of that. And yeah, I, I always loved holidays. I loved like special occasions. And did you have a bar mitzvah? When I was 22 years old, I did. I didn't have one. I didn't have one growing up. I didn't go to, um. Hebrew school as a child. But when I went to um, Israel on the birthright tour, I had a bar mitzvah. Yeah, I did it later in life. Starting off with the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, we actually had not too long ago, I want to say maybe season five, if I'm not mistaken, but I'll put it in the notes. One of, she's not a dietitian, but she works with a lot of dietitians and her name is Jessica Freeman. And she works on a lot of, um, she's like a web designer. And she talked about how she was diagnosed when she was three years old with type one diabetes. And for the people who are listening, this is different than the type two diabetes because this is, your body is not producing insulin. You are on lifelong medication. In your case, Greg, you were saying, is it a pump? Is it an injection? Is it some kind of timing thing that you're doing? And like you mentioned, it's almost like a science project and a math problem every time you're managing what you're eating. Can you share a little bit more about that experience of when you were growing up and did your family know how to help you manage that at such a young age? I wear an insulin pump. That's how I manage it. I've worn a pump for uh, most uh, most of my life. I started at a, at a pretty young age. I was about nine or 10 years old when I started with the pumps. Um, when I first went on the pumps, they certainly were not as good as they are today. So um, they've definitely come quite a long way in technology for diabetes management, which I'm very thankful for. Um, so I wear that along with a uh, sensor. So the sensor is um, so I don't have to prick my finger. I just have to change the sensor once every 10 days and everything goes to my phone. And just about two years, I would say a year and a half, maybe two years ago, um, they were able to update the um, pump system so that it goes hand in hand with your sensor. My like basal insulin adjusts itself automatically. I still have to cover for like based on how my numbers are. I still have to cover for meals. So I still have to give myself meal coverage. But the um, just the fact that, you know, it automatically corrects itself for a high or it gives myself less insulin if I'm dropping to prevent a low, that's really made my life a whole lot easier. It's made sleeping a whole lot easier <laughs> with, uh, with, you know, waking up several times in the middle of the night because like, oh, I'm going too high, I'm going too low. And, and now the pump kind of took care of that. So I'm very thankful for the um, technology, how far we've come.
Yeah. And I can't I, wait to see what's next. <laughs> I often say I'm so grateful that we are from the future because so much of this is current. Like, you know, like you said, in the last, you know, two years, five years, 10 years that we didn't have this decades ago. And so it was a real trial and error effort. And this was very challenging. And so, you know, one of the things I want to talk a little bit about that too, because you and I are both in the dietetics profession is when we're working with a patient population and we are trying to explain or educate them, there's so many different factors to take into account. You just mentioned sleep, hormones, um, also socializing. That plays a huge role too. Like, you know, can I go out and have birthday cake? Or what if we have a holiday meal and all of my numbers are all over the place? And you also mentioned the discussion around intuitive eating, which I don't know in any of my episodes, if we had anybody specific who was certified in the intuitive eating discussion, but that topic has come up before. So for anybody who's listening to this, you might've heard us talking about that where there are truly principles that are applied. And I think a lot of it has to do with recovering eating disorders. That's kind of where it came up in where people have a better relationship with food. They try not to be so focused on, you know, calorie counting and exercising and having what they quote unquote should be doing and instead allow things come more naturally. But what you just said there really speaks volumes because not everything can be applied to everybody. It's not a blanket approach that can be applied to certain populations. And so in your current, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump ahead for a sec, but in your current world as a dietitian, are there patient populations that you work with where you have to kind of cater to the individual in understanding what they might be going through, what factors are involved, or do you have somewhat of a similar age range, condition, et cetera, where you can, you know, give some sort of guidance that's a little bit more generalized. Yeah. So um, right now my job and I am working, I'm working in a psychiatric hospital. So I work um, specifically with the psych population. Now, when you, when, if you had asked me like what, which population I would see myself working with, like when I was a student, when I was an intern, psych was probably one of the last on that list, if not the last. I never saw myself working with psych, but here we are, and I do kind of enjoy it. Um, I mean, uh, listen, some days can be very stressful, I will say, but um, it is it is very interesting. It's um, a very unique population, and um, it's like mo uh, most of them, I mean, some of them are there sh uh, short term, but most of them are there you know, I, I would say more uh, longer term, you know, because, you know, they, they really have to uh, get stabilized before we can discharge them. It's very challenging because at my job, I, I deal a lot with, you know, dietary restrictions, like, like, oh, they, they can't have this because, you know, because of their labs and, you know, just, just working with the medical staff on that. And, you know, I'm really about liberalization just for just for any population, but specifically for this population, just because they come from very challenging backgrounds. It's not a lot of them. It's like the reasons as to why, like mentally, they're so ill. They have like a certain background. They've had certain things happen to them. For them, a lot of the uh, times food is like the one enjoyment they have left. They might not have a lot of family. They might not have a lot of friends. It's like, what do they look forward to on a day-to-day -day basis? I really do work with the patients as well as the medical staff to try and just make their meals as enjoyable 
as we possibly can, but it's never going to be home. It's never going to be like the food that they're used to or the food they have memories of. I mean, it, it's hospital food, you know, <laughs> like what, what can you really expect from it? So yeah, I do always try to empathize with them on that regard. And I always try to work with them on that. You are bringing up a lot of good points, but before we dive into some of the more specifics of your current situation, walk me through a little bit about how the past you became the current you. What was it about in your life that led you into the field of dietetics? Yeah, so well, that um, a large portion of that is um, what, what I was saying earlier. So I was diagnosed with type one diabetes at six years old. And then, um, you know, from the age of six, I always had to see nurses and doctors and dietitians, And I always had to go to medical appointments from, from that young age. I was, I do remember sitting in a dietitian's office, looking at nutrition labels, looking at uh, play food, like the play food, you know, I mean, they tried to make it as kid friendly as possible. I'm, I'm sure you can relate to, you know, sometimes you deal with people middle-aged who, you know, they don't know what a carbohydrate is. And me at six years old, I had to know what a carbohydrate was at such a young age. So yeah, and I never really thought about it to that extent. Like, um, like I, I kind of just looked at it as like monitoring my illness. I never thought it was like any type of inspiration to uh, like what a career path would be, but um, I was never much of a school person, to be honest. And when I was in high school, I didn't have the best grades. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And it was actually my mom who told me, well, uh, you know, when I was in my uh, later teenage years, that I should consider going into nutrition because you've been studying nutrition labels your whole life. You've, you know, you do it every single day. You're always looking at things to monitor your illness. So you might as well take your knowledge that you've gained all these years and try to help others with it as well. And they say, you should always listen to your mom. So I took her advice. Now, I want to say, knowing what you and I and a lot of other listeners who are aware of, like I said before, the dietetic internship process, did you decide that that was in fact the great decision? Because if you were not so great with academics in the earlier years, this is I always say it's almost like going through pre-med. I mean, were you prepared for how much science and how much competition almost all also was involved because, you know, you really had to be the head of the class and have a very good personal statement, be a desirable candidate when you applied for internships. So how did you marry what was kind of a weakness and improve upon that as you entered into the field? As the years went on, I did become more uh, of a school person and more diligent with it. And I, I will say that the um, suffer a lot of like childhood trauma, which kind of um, was part of the reason I, I struggled academically when I was in high school. So, you know, as you, as, as I got older, as you know, just like people around me, like started to mature, um, like those, those things, you know, uh, died down a bit. Um, and it was something I was interested in. It was something I liked. I mean, I was uh, very nervous about the science. I, did, I was not expecting that at all. I was not expecting organic chemistry and biochemistry to, you know, I thought it's like, okay, we'll study nutrition. Like that's simple enough. <laughs> so yeah, no, it was definitely a shock in the beginning. Now, as the years went on and as I continued to um, emphasize to myself that this is what, 
you know, I want to do, this is what I'm interested in. You know, I did become more diligent with school and studying and um, getting my work done. It, it was an interest and something that I liked. When you find that area of what you want to do, it's, it, it does make a difference. In school, I didn't know that. I never thought of school as like, what I mean, in uh, high school. I never thought of like going to high school as like, oh, this could be your career. I just thought about it like, you know, why do I have to know math? It's like, but yeah, you, you grow and you mature. And, and I, even after my bachelor's, I kept going and I got a master's. So yes, I did. Um, I evolved into it. And I think many people can. Well, I'm very glad that you did because you really play such an important role with what you're doing right now. And so if you don't mind sharing, how did you come about landing the position that you have now, being that it wasn't kind of in your view as to patient populations or conditions that you were even entertaining at the time? So yeah, this isn't my first job as a dietitian. I have worked in um, acute, like a acute care hospital, just a regular general hospital. And um and then I was working in a nursing home for a bit. Um, um, and I, I will say that uh, both of those jobs were not ideal. <laughs> it's, you know, the, hosp the hospital, just the general care hospital, it was just, it was too fast paced for me. And I felt that, um, I, I, I don't know, I, I just felt that it's like they put so much pressure on like the quotas and getting this amount of notes done. And it's like, you, you know, like, like, I want to like talk to the patients, I want to like, uh, try and make a difference. Like I'm just sitting there writing notes all day. It's this. And I felt a similar way in the nursing home where it's like a, a million notes. It's just like, you, you know, I, honestly, when I was working in the nursing home, I have to say, I was starting to get concerned that I was doing like permanent damage to my back. Like I was just sitting for like nine hours straight and just like con constantly documenting. I was like, yeah, I don't know how people do this for like decades. Like my back is going to give out pretty soon. So um, yeah, neither one of those jobs I stayed at for a long period of time. And then I was working at WIC for a bit. And WIC was interesting. I actually, I did enjoy WIC. I thought it was, um, I, I thought it was like a nice area of dietetics to work at. The only reason I couldn't stay was because um, I was hired as like a contract position. So I would, and at the time I was aging off my parents' insurance. So um, I couldn't get benefits and um, I had to look for another job unless they were gonna make me permanent, which, you know, there wasn't any openings in the near future, at least at the time. So, um, so then I came across this job um, and I'm like, all right, I'll give it a shot. It's like a little different. Um, and it's a, it's, I'm actually employed through the state. It's a state run hospital. So the benefits are very good, good health insurance. You know, they have a pension plan, you know, a lot of those nice little perks that you don't get from all jobs. So I'm like, okay, I'll give this a shot. And, um, and I did enjoy it. My first boss, the one who hired me, she was just um, phenomenal. I got along with her very well, and I still keep in touch with her to this day. And, um, you know, I felt that uh, they have a lot, of, they, they do a lot of things at my job that, you know, dietitians maybe it's a, maybe wouldn't have to do elsewhere. Like we have to do like dining room inspections and logging temperatures and stuff. 
But, you know, I, I think it's like, I mean, we did have to learn that for the RD exam. Um, so it's like, you know, it's, it's something to be mindful of. And I, I feel like it's not, it's definitely not as heavy on the paperwork and you do get time with your patients. I do weekly groups on my units. So, um, like I do weekly education, nutrition education groups. Now the education can be, you know, a bit challenging with them. Obviously, you know, that, uh, some of them can just have a hard time learning things or understanding things. But you do the best you can and you learn, like I, I definitely learned a lot about the psych population. It's, you know, the way they portray it in movies and just like the media is not an accurate representation. I will tell you that right now. It's, you know, it's and, and there's just a variety of patients of, you know, what their background is, like wh whether it was just like an illness that they were born with or whether it's something that you know, sort of came about because of certain traumas. So it really opens your mind to, you know, like uh, mental illness and, you know, how like we all go through it to an extent, you know, all, all of our, I, I, I say like, I think uh, everyone can benefit from therapy at one point in their life or another. I think it is important. I 100% agree with you. And mm -hmm. you're bringing up a lot of thoughts in my mind too because as you're talking i'm thinking of things that some some things have come up in past conversations on the interviews i've done on this podcast but also i'm also a teacher so i also have conversations with my students and then sometimes with my own patients and clients we have these discussions too very a, a wide range of things greg so feel free to chime in wherever you feel if you have anything that you'd like to share as far as where you see maybe some guidance to be given if, you know, all things considered and you were able to run the show, when it comes to trauma-informed patient care, when it comes to mental health issues, or even now we're seeing a lot more neurodivergent diagnoses with ADHD, especially in the older population, because we didn't know how to diagnose that before, and now we're recognizing this is an issue, but you know, you have a lot of different factors coming in. And so when you're put in a position in a facility where hello, hashtag, you know, American healthcare, unfortunately, sometimes it is just about the numbers and churning out the notes and getting people in and out as fast as possible. Where can we as healthcare providers marry that? Like, where can we have that compassion and be empathetic and allow for people's lived experiences, but yet still have to meet a quota or a target because of whatever our reimbursement rates are kind of dictating? Or, is it not? Is it like, if it's one thing, it's not the other, and you have to go to a different facility in order to be able to accommodate better quality care? Yeah. So I will, I will say I um, have a very good friend who is a nurse practitioner. And she, uh, she works at a um, very, very big hospital. It's a, a level one trauma hospital. And she told me and I, 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 I can't say I disagree with her on this, but um, she she told me that, you know, because she, she actually works on the uh, diabetes unit and uh, or, you know, endocrine unit, whatever. She does um, like make referrals to the dietitian. She said it, it, it got to the point where I hardly ever even refer them anymore 
because I, I feel that the patients don't uh, get much out of it. So I was like, I, I asked her, I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, the, um, the notes that the dietitians write are completely ridiculous. She said, they're just so long and they blab blabber on about all this stuff, about their meds, about their, about this, about that. And, and she said, all this stuff is in the chart. And it's like, you know, like just, uh, she's like, I, I want them to just talk about like what you did with the patient and just like, you know, focused on that. Like what nutritionally are we working on? What interventions did you do? But she said like a lot of it is just like things that we don't need to know. Like we, we can find that in other places. So, um, and then she says like when she speaks to her patients, and she's like, oh, did you see the dietitian? It's like, yeah, they gave me that paper, those like, you know, nutrition care manual papers. <laughs> and um, and they didn't really have anything, you know, like, like they didn't have anything much that they said, oh yeah, they were in here for like five minutes to just give that, you know, scripted little education that they always give. She's told me stories that it's like, you know, they, they would give the um, nutrition care process education handout that was um, in English when the patient didn't even speak English. So it's like they don't even like realize that things in the chart. Documentation is important. So happen, I get that 100%. And I think it's important for other clinicians and other dietitians who are following up that there's a paper trail to see like, okay, what was done? What, um, what, uh, what did we do so far? Like it's definitely important that things get documented. But I think it should be more about just like what we're doing specifically and making the notes lighter and not so much on writing about all of these things. And then maybe we can increase the patient time a bit more because that's really the part of our job that I think most would agree the most rewarding is the time that we're spending with the patients. But since we put so much emphasis on documentation and documentation and quotas and the patient time is getting less and less and less. And that's the unfortunate part. I mean, I, I understand like people feel like they need the documentation. They feel that that's what they have to show for their work that they're doing. But I do think we should put more, less of an emphasis on, or at least make an attempt to like, how can we shorten these notes? How can we make it like, so it's like more time efficient for our staff and that they can spend a bit more time with the patient. <laughs>
as time goes on, as you get more experience with stuff, you get more familiar with how things are done. You loosen up the structure. You understand like you've been doing, Greg, like you're adhering to a certain way that is inside the scope of practice, but allowing you to feel a little bit more flexible with your approach, not feeling so rigid with things. And then maybe, maybe with some of the electronic health systems that we work on, maybe there's a way to, you know, we have like a universal language in our dietetics profession, but that doesn't apply to all healthcare providers. So maybe there's a way that we can just do a quick little drop down, you know, summary of things and get the heck out of there so that we're not spending so much time on administrative tasks. That's, that's really great insight. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. We'll see another 10 years to come. Who knows? <laughs> so Greg, share with us a little bit about what a current week in the life of you is. We've heard about your current work environment. So you can tell us a little bit about that too, but what about your own personal pursuits? Like what are some of the things that you do to manage your own health? Not just the type one diagnosis that you have, but just, you know, self-care, making sure you are adhering to whatever physical and mental self-care needs that you have for yourself with such a busy schedule and with so much on your plate. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I work a full-time job. It's uh, Monday through Friday. My uh, hours uh, vary. Sometimes it's, um, sometimes I get out at uh, 5.30. Other days I get out a little earlier at four. Um, so, but yeah, it's, um, you know, a full 40 hours a week. And uh, we rotate the weekends, but not the full week, but Saturdays. So there's somebody has to be there on Saturdays, but Sundays, none of the dietitians work at the hospital. So, um, so every like six weeks, I have to work a Saturday. And then when I do work this Saturday, I get off the following Monday. So I always, it, it's always just a, a 40 hour work week, which is nice. And I, I have to say, I pretty much always get out on time, which I like. I, I've, I'm never really in a situation where I have to stay like hours later, go in, do your eight hours, you go home. Then when I come home, um, also what I like is it's a very light commute from my house. It's only about 10 minutes. Things I do for my own health. So Sundays, I'm always off Sundays. So Sundays is my meal prep day where I do, you know, my meal preps for the entire week because I can't cook when I come home from work. I'm, I'm just like, I'm just not in the mood to like start, start cooking at that point. So I always meal prep for the week and I keep it in the fridge and then I just, you know, heat it up when I get home. It definitely gives me something to look forward to when I'm at work. It's like, ooh, which, which meal should I have tonight? And <laughs> so, and, and, and I love to cook. So I'm always like my, pretty much my whole Instagram saved page is all, all recipes and um, things like that. I, I do enjoy cooking. I find it very therapeutic. And then, you know, I, look at recipes and I put my own twist on it of like how I can make it a bit healthier, how I can incorporate like flavors that I enjoy. So yeah, that's definitely a big hobby of mine. So that's uh, usually Sundays is um, my cooking day. I would definitely call myself more introverted. I, I definitely enjoy just time in my room, like lighting my candles, like <laughs> playing Candy Crush and like watching TV, watching like things online. So, you know, I, I definitely have more quiet evenings, but, you know, I do have my weekends and my evenings where I'm with friends and stuff. I go out to like social events. As far as um, health, start exercising a bit. 
and I'll tell I'll tell you this is a bit of a funny story. I uh, came to this job like on my interview. So I went in for my interview at at this hospital like the um the patients you get certain levels so some patients do have the levels that they can, you know, go off their unit and like walk around. So I was in for my interview and I get on the elevator to um to go for the interview and a patient walks into the elevator and I at the at that time I I I had no like experience with psych patients I didn't know what to expect if they they were going to become violent if they you know like so I but I knew it was a a patient I'll, I'll say that much so um so they get on the elevator and I'm just like waiting to, you know, get to the floor I need to go to. And I see them like, uh, just like staring at me out of the corner of my eye. So I'm like, at the time, I'm just like looking down and I'm just like, do not make eye contact, do not make eye contact. So I'm just like, <laughs> I'm not, but I was very nervous. And, um, but then they, you know, they just, they didn't say anything and they, they just got off the floor above was where I needed to go. So I, and then I ended up getting the job, obviously. And then they put my office, my desk on the 14th floor. And we uh, sign in through the basement, not even on the first floor, through the basement. So I'm like, I am never getting back on that elevator again. So every day since I started this job, I've walked up 15 flights of stairs every single morning to get to my office. And I'm like, at first it was very, you know, tiring and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to die. But at this point, I'm just used to it. So that's my exercise, walking upstairs. Do you also walk down all those? Absolutely. I've never been in that elevator since. That is so funny. The things that we do sometimes that end up positively affecting us. I mean, there are times where I'll get off of a subway, a stop earlier, just for the sake of adding a couple extra steps, but not because, you know, I'm like concerned about my environment, my situation. So that was okay. So something that was a little sketchy, a little nerve wracking turned into something that was health supportive in some way. That's too funny. Greg, I wanted to go back for a second because you were mentioning about loving to cook and your Instagram. And I remember, I think on Instagram and or Facebook, you do a lot of baking too. Will you share with us a little bit about like you do holiday themed cakes and things like that. Is that just for your own purposes or do you sell them to people? Yeah, I mean, I've been told by many that I should try and uh, sell it, but no, I, I've never, I mean, I have done um, like, uh, I, I have done uh, cakes and baking for like my friends events before if they asked me to, but I, I, I've never charged anyone for it. Um, but yeah, no, it's yeah that that is a hobby as well. I I I just like the kitchen. It's it's fun. I like uh, baking and I like uh, decorating the cakes, making like unique designs. And yeah, that's uh that's uh, definitely another hobby I have. I, I I do also try my best to like make certain swaps to make things a bit healthier. I will say with baking, it can be a bit more challenging. Like. I mean, you need to add sugar sometimes. Like, what can I tell you? <laughs> like, but um, like I said, my my dad is Italian. So this um this past year, he um he just had his uh, ten year anniversary of having a bone marrow transplant. My dad is a cancer survivor, so I made him a cannoli cake for that event. 
and, um, you know, so I always try, I do try my best to incorporate my own culture and my own backgrounds. Like I do, I do a lot of Jewish baking as well into my desserts. Those are definitely the two cultures that I love the best. I'm also of Italian heritage and my boyfriend's parents, his whole family, they're Jewish, but they're Sephardic Jews. They are from the Mediterranean. And so there's a lot of similarities when we get together. Yes, they still have their traditional Jewish meals during the holidays, but there's always some kind of food, baking, something happening. His mom actually just called us and said, you guys want to come up and grab some cookies because I'm making cookies. <laughs> so there's yeah. always something fun happening there. So you're bringing back a lot of good memories to me too. You know, I wanted to share with you I was going to ask you if you didn't work in this more clinical type of environment, would you work in culinary or in food service? I, I have uh, considered it, but I, I don't know. It's um, when, when I do eat, um, but like I said, it's I, I feel that, you know, because of my type one diabetes, it has to be like uh, very like structured and everything. So I feel like a lot of the times, because um, I've worked, I have worked in food service. I've worked as a dietary aide. I did that as like, um, like uh, right before I did my internship to try and get some like experience in the fields. <laughs> like, so I was uh, in diet, and I I've seen how like the cooks and stuff work. It's like they're like constantly on their feet and constantly doing this, doing that, and then it's like when they're when they're done, it's like they'll have like their little plate for themselves and then just like scarf it down quickly. And then it's like, okay, let's go to the next meal. And it's like, I feel like for my diabetes, that would not be the best schedule. Um, you know, not yet very hard to know, like how many carbs I'm eating very hard on my blood sugar that I'm always on my feet and running around. I mean, even in the hospital, that can be challenging. Like as you and I know, there's a lot of running up and down the hallways and stuff as we briefly spoke about like health insurance, um, I know that, you know, jobs in those areas, like working in restaurants, working um, in culinary, you know, sometimes it could be, be a bit more challenging to get benefits with jobs like that. that. That's why I kind of decided against that idea. But I, yeah, I did consider it. And that is an interesting question. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm asking it because I had always wanted to go to culinary school, but I just couldn't afford it. And so I used to take classes on the weekends here and there, like sauce classes and pastry classes and knife skill classes. And I eventually ended up running and owning uh, an event planning and catering company. And I also did personal chef stuff for a while. And then when I started teaching, we had a lab and lecture combo where I would teach in the class, the lecture, and then I would also run across the hall and do the kitchen part of it, the, you know, the, the culinary stuff for the students. I don't want to set foot in a commercial kitchen ever again. I don't want to set foot in anybody's kitchen ever again. Like you just said before, with it's, it's enjoyable to me to cook. And because of those experiences, I haven't lifted a finger in my own kitchen in years. I mean, today, as you and I are speaking at the time of this recording, was the first time that I kind of sort of made something from scratch. But usually at this point, I'm just like buying grab and go, heat and eat, already done for you meals because the joy got sucked out of me because it was a job. And I just I didn't I didn't like it. I tried it for many years and it kind of stole the joy from me. I used to have 
Oscar parties and, you know, Friendsgivings and all of these different events that I would host and make food for people. But then once I started getting paid for it and I had to work with clients who were a little bit overbearing and some, you know, some modifications had to be made there. I just felt like, man, I don't feel like cooking anymore. So it really stole it from me. So I'm glad that you're sticking to cooking and baking for you is something that brings you joy and you're maintaining it as a hobby. And then the dietetics part is in a different realm. As we're wrapping up our conversation, a few of my final questions. The first one is, where do you see yourself in the future? Like, what plans do you have for yourself, both personally and professionally? As we've established, uh, diet, uh, diabetes definitely sparked my interest in this field. And I always uh, saw myself becoming a certified diabetes educator. Um, although now I think they, they ch- now it's like care and education specialist or what, whatever they changed it to. <laughs> but um I definitely still want to get that. I, um, I'm definitely still interested in that credential. I'm just holding off on it a bit for now because, um, as I mentioned earlier, I um, after I got my RD, I went back and I finished my master's. But because I finished my master's after I got my RD, all the credits that I got from my master's uh, transferred to my RD license. So, and those credits trans uh, uh, add up pretty quickly. So I'm at like I'm well above the 75 credits I need for this cycle. So it doesn't really make sense to get the CDE at this point. I should just wait for my next cycle to start. But my next, because uh, if I do that, then I can transfer those credits. So my next cycle starts May 2024. So yeah, I have a, a next year. And then, um, and then once my new cycle starts, I'm going to work on getting my uh, CDCES, as they call it now. And then, yeah, like I've been at my job now for almost four years and I, um, you need to stay for at least five to be vested into the pension program they have. So I'm definitely, you know, planning to stay there for at least five years, but yeah, once I get vested into the pension and then once I get my CDCES, um, you know, I'm going to take it from there, see what other opportunities arise. I mean, I truthfully, I always saw myself working for an insulin pump corporation because insulin pumps changed my life and they're amazing. You know, I may still want to do something like that. I might, might want to work for a sensor company, for, um, but I do know that, um, you know, people who work in sales and who uh, in that type of work in the diabetes community, you know, they're, they're very nice. And, you know, the people who have educated me on how to use these products and how to uh, go on them. I, I still remember all of them to this day, uh, all these years later, even the ones as far back as when I was six years old, I still remember their names. I still remember what they look like. So, I mean, if I could leave that impact for just like one person before I die, like that would make me happy. I have faith in you and I know that you're going to excel. And just for anybody who's listening, who doesn't know what you're talking about, the continuing education units is part of our scope of practice. As dietitians, we have to maintain continuing education, professional development. And so Greg, you, same with me, my, my master's folded into my dietetics when I became a dietitian. 
I think my first year. So as every five years, we're supposed to have 75 continuing education units. And then as Greg mentioned, it kind of, you know, refreshes and renews the, the following five year cycle. I think I had 142.5 credits and I was like, do these things roll over? <laughs> no, they do not. They do not roll over. You have to start from zero. So that's a really good point is that Yes, you want to continue doing and pursuing the professional development, but, you know, let's make sure we also get credit for it. Otherwise, what's the point? Like, let's try to cash in on this stuff um, so that it's it's worth our while. So, Greg, is there anything that I didn't ask or that we didn't talk about that you would like to share as kind of like final parting words of wisdom? Having diabetes and like, uh, now working, uh, like working in the psychiatric population and just like, like, I, I know like you and I grew up in a time where there's like a lot of uh, diet culture and like, you know, always talking about calories. I, I just want to like emphasize food should be enjoyable and we, we should love what we eat. There, there's more to food than nutrients. And I understand that as a dietitian and as a person as well. You have diabetes, you shouldn't be eating that. And for a, um, for, for a while growing up, like it really distorted my relationship with food. I didn't want to eat in front of people. I would only want to eat in my room. Like I didn't want to deal with like comments. I felt it was very embarrassing and I, I never judge anyone, but also don't, don't be afraid to, um, speak up about that more that it can damage, uh, people's relationship. Like Food is love, food is culture, food is like who we are. It's not just about nutrients, it's not just about health. And I think as dietitians where we all know that, but I, I would want like the world and parents and friends to also know that as well. I 100% I agree with you. And I think, you know, we mentioned before about being of the age of technology and being from the future now where we have so much at our hands that we didn't have before, but that also, comes with a lot of the negative discussions out there too, like complete strangers commenting on social media and posts that, you know, we maybe as more public figures, or if we're posting things just because we like to share, and then we have to come up with some comments from people. And then we have to figure out, you know, do I set boundaries with this? Do I delete and block that person? Do I say something and kind of advocate for, nicer kindness compassion towards things you know these internet trolls really can do a number on some people so i really think both on that respect and also people within our internal circles too who are so used to seeing us going through stages of our lives who feel like it's okay to comment on things you know you're still allowed to set boundaries with people who you love and that's also what makes a relationship stronger is saying something like you can't talk to me like that anymore and this is what i would appreciate you know, our conversation to be around and I need you to be more sensitive about that. So I really encourage anybody to, to listen to that. If you're the person who's doing the commenting, zip your lip. And if you're the person who's hearing the comments, you know, stand up for yourself a little bit and try to maybe be braver, feel more courage and know that there are people like Greg and me that have got, got your back back here. So Greg, that brings me to my final two questions. At the end of every interview, I ask, what is on your plate today, both figuratively and literally. So we are currently at the end of an evening here, middle of the week. What are you working on or doing next as soon as we disconnect from each other? And then what is the next meal that you're going to be having? Next on my plate, I, I'm not very uh, religious, but 
I, um, I would consider myself like cultural and on um, Friday evenings is uh, Shabbat. And I don't do like the whole Shabbat dinner. I don't do the Shabbat prayers. I don't do any of that. But I do um, try to do a tradition where I do light my candles. And I, I always tell myself one thing I need to improve for the week and one thing I, uh, that I'm proud of myself for doing. So I do that every Friday evening. I'm just like working towards the week and uh, always trying to make myself better and make myself stronger. And um, literally what's on my plate next, I guess my next meal is probably going to be breakfast because um, I already had dinner. I might have a, I might have a snack. Sometimes I do have a nighttime snack and I love banana with peanut butter. That's, that's one of my go-to snacks at, in the evening, but I also like rice cakes and hummus. So maybe before I go to bed, I'll have one of those two snacks. Um, but if not, I'll have breakfast tomorrow, which will probably be like, um, uh, what do I have for oatmeal with blueberries and bananas? I'm an, I'm an oatmeal person. I do enjoy that. I also like um, uh, banana toast, like banana with peanut butter on bread. Like that's pretty awesome. The great combos. I love the, the macro combos of the banana and the peanut butter or oatmeal. I throw cottage cheese or yogurt in there also to kind of bump up the protein factor. Some people think that's gross, but I don't mind it because I've gotten used to it. But I also throw nuts or peanut butter in that too. Like I'm a huge peanut butter fan. Thank goodness I don't have any allergies that I have to be concerned yeah. about. But I love a hearty like breakfast. I think, you know, kicking off the start of the day and getting myself fueled in that way because there's so much going on after that. And I'm a pretty early riser. So I love that. I love whatever your choice is, whatever your snack of the evening or your breakfast of the morning is. I love those, those offerings that you have for yourself. Greg, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you a little bit better in a way that I don't think we have in the times that we have spent with each other or the, the communications we've had over the years. I'm so proud of how far you've come. I'm so honored to call you a colleague in this field. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what the future does hold for you. So thanks so much for being on with me today. Thank you so much for joining me this week on the Dish with Dina podcast. I am Dina D'Alessandro, registered dietitian, nutritionist, founder, and chief executive life changer at Dish with Dina. And I'm also your host. If you like what you heard, I would be so grateful if you could subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and share this with others who you think might benefit from what we have to offer on these episodes. You can also join my mailing list at dishwithdina.com or email me at info at dishwithdina.com with questions, comments, feedback, and if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode because everybody eats and we all have a story to share. I hope you tune back in next week when we dish again. Dish again.